Hey Sans Faisan, it's Jorgen Sundberg here with the Employer Branding Podcast. Just trying to make the world of work a better place. This week, it's all about the value of culture on an employer brand. What is the value? Let's find out. Let's start the show. Brian Evia, how are you doing? I'm very well, Jürgen. Very excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming into the office. Now, who are you and what do you do? I'm a management consultant. I help people and organizations lead change and growth for competitive advantage. Oh, yeah. And this work really involves aligning leadership, strategy, and culture. And that's an emphasis on leadership and management, coaching and development, organization and culture change, and overall organizational health, which is really strategy, design, and effectiveness. So I started my career in Silicon Valley during the dot-com era, and I've worked with many, many venture-backed startups. I was the first head of HR for two Silicon Valley based high growth startups and I've consulted at the multinational level as a big company consultant on organization effectiveness. So I'm based in London now and I work with established companies and with startups, usually startups that are navigating the growth and funding phases. And I'm also an executive consultant to Astia, which is a global community that helps high growth women entrepreneurs and startups with gender inclusive teams with access to capital, leadership development and business expertise. Great. So you got uh, a lot going on, lots of irons in the fire. Yes. Uh, good. And today we want to talk about the value of culture to an employer brand. So let me ask you the big question, what is the value of culture to an employer brand? I think culture is intrinsically tied to competitive advantage. So if a company actually wants to have a competitive advantage, it will, will diligently understand how to perceive and address and really leverage culture to its best advantage. So the short answer is culture competitive advantage. And why is it important right now? I think it's almost never been as important for organizations to understand their cultural advantages because it's really also connected to their shared purpose. And shared purpose is really the reason that everyone comes into work every day. And there is a a great need in, in many businesses, not just startups, but many businesses for this deeper sense of meaning, this deeper sense of shared purpose. And of course, for a startup, which really doesn't have a history, it doesn't have a past, it doesn't have a legacy, it doesn't have a structure, it really is, is trying to every day uh, demonstrate its, its uh, viability. It needs to understand shared purpose. It needs to understand the reason, this value proposition for everyone to be moving in the right direction. And it's incredibly important for the survival of a high growth company to really, really get to grips and become cultural experts. Okay, that's interesting. So how does an organization go about to understand culture and how do they become these culture experts? Mm. It's important to start with the definition of corporate culture, which goes back to a guy named Edgar Schein, who was a brilliant organizational psychologist from MIT and he coined the term corporate culture. In a nutshell, Shine calls culture essentially the past. It's the residue of your history so far. It's the residue of your history as an individual, my history as an individual, the the group, the company, what have you. And it's really a shared set of assumptions that has allowed you and me and the group and the company to learn how to solve our problems. And so that means it's actually intangible. It's an abstraction. You can't touch it. 
and yet it is constructed of, of many, many elements of assumption and expectation. So there are lots of, of invisible things, such as well, what's our, our individual motivation for doing what we do, but there are also very many visible things, um, and these are the languages of organizational psychology when you talk about rituals and patterns and norms. And many people look at culture as, as um, an element of what's called climate, which is how we do things around here. Mm -hmm. And that's a very, very important part of it. So that's usually a good place for companies to start, which is thinking of climate, thinking of how the climate affects individual and collective uh, intent and then behavior. Because ultimately what you want to see is the behavior that's reflecting the culture you want. You don't want that disconnect. And uh, do, do you have a step-by-step -step guide to uncover this or to, to evolve culture and to become uh, yeah, really cognizant of it? I have a few encouragements, a few recommendations. Yeah. And the first step is really to start with the definition of it and to start mm. with the recognition and the real acceptance of the necessity for becoming a culture expert. So that starts with, let's say, defining values. It's usually an easy place to start, especially for a founder CEO, to say to him or her, what is it do you want this startup to become? And think of it very aspirationally, and think of those core values, which basically means the, the, the beliefs that that founder, and then the founding team, and then the first uh, groupings of a company, what things are of value. There's a very, um, a very topical example just out of the United States. If you follow uh, professional basketball in the United States, and I'm from San Francisco, uh, and the Golden State Warriors are in, the, are in the playoffs now, and they have a fantastic coach who just gave an interview talking about his journey as a leader and as a coach. And he was having a conversation with a more experienced coach who said, essentially, give me one of your core values. And this coach of the Warriors, Steve Kerr, said, joy. So the first coach said, joy, great. That has to be reflected in your practices every single day. So Coach Kerr values joy, just like a founder CEO would value it, let's say. And that means that joy has to be threaded through all of the elements of the company in the same way that this basketball team threads joy and their other values, which happen to be competition, compassion, and mindfulness. They weave all of these through everything that happens. So the system then of this team, of the whole organization, becomes reflective of these values. So I think that's step one. Mm -hmm. Step two is really how to evolve the culture based on certain elements. And I mentioned uh, climate before, and yep. these are certain areas of climate that you can focus on. Think of the kind of environment, the actual environment that is going to be an embodiment of, of the results of the behaviors of the outcomes you want. So companies can look at areas like flexibility, which is how free are employees able to really dig into their work and innovate. Uh, areas like responsibility. Many organizations talk about having a sense of responsibility among the employees, but they really don't. They really have sort of command and control because they're afraid of giving too much responsibility. Things like standards. What are the standards that are set for all elements of, of the company, especially as, as the company grows and changes over time and starts to expand? Standards really have to stay fixed. And whether they're high or medium or low, unless they're defined and really monitored and enforced to a certain degree, they will start to slip. And then another one that's getting a lot of uh, conversation right now is safety. What's the belief of the overall safety of a company to actually have 
the, the ability to take risks and make mistakes and look foolish and yeah. say things that don't really make sense. So what's that, what's that, uh, what's that level of psychological and, and emotional safety? So that's probably a decent second step would be to define some areas to look at that think about, that relate to climate, that reflect back to culture. And then the third, I think, is you have to test culture. And you test culture most clearly under stress. So when there are inconsistencies or, or, or unfairness, let's say, between groups of people who have power in a startup versus groups that don't have power. So let's say the leadership team and maybe the founding team versus everybody else. And if there are two sets of rules, written or unwritten, if there are two sets of practices or two sets of treatments, that will be a real test of, of the actual culture. And if there's a discrepancy in how those two groups behave, that's a real problem. I think also you have to look at how organizations face and resolve conflict. Startups are usually pretty bad at it. They like to think they are, but when it comes down to it, startups are very, very fragile environments. Most startups, most founder CEOs I work with have a, a good degree of fear around what it is they're doing, and it's a very painful process. So sometimes when, when they're confronted with a problem, when there's a real conflict on the table, it's very natural for them to just want to pull away from it and, and sort of let it drift off to the side. Um, it's a very natural reaction. It's just not very useful. And I would say, finally, bad news. Uh, there's, a, there's some great quotes um, coming out of um, uh, Andreessen Horowitz around the healthiest environment is one where, where bad news can be shared. So create a culture where that's actually expected, where the assumption is when we have a problem, we'll get it into the open so we can actually do something about it. Great. Okay. And uh, from, from your experience working with companies, what are some of the typical mistakes and the pitfalls that you see happening regarding culture and what should uh, our listeners avoid? The number one pitfall, the most common mistake, especially startups make around culture, it's actually very closely connected to any sort of people issue, is they don't pay attention to it. They think, well, we'll deal with it later, or uh, we'll, we'll get to it when we have more structure, or it's not important now because everyone sitting around this table is so tightly linked, we don't need to have any, anything that's, um, that's formal or anything that's really put together. As one London CEO said to me uh, not too long ago, he said that the problem with that, and he'd been through an organization that had ignored it and it had really, really torpedoed the company, it really prevented them from growing. He said the problem with, with pushing this aside is that you just never get ahead of people issues. Once you start to get behind, it's a bit like reverse compound interest. The, the challenges just mount and mount and mount. So if you're a founder CEO and you're looking around your company and you have 10 or 15 or 25 people and you have a lot of growth ahead of you, be really honest with yourself. Write down the greatest people or culture problems, challenges you have right now, and then think about what those problems will look like when there are two times, three times, four times as many people or products or locations within your company. It's a, it just keeps growing. So I think that's the, the biggest, uh, biggest problem. And then I think probably the second one is that uh, founders assume that everybody just gets it. That yep. the founders come in and they say, hey, this is our culture. We're, we're, we're just um, uh, we're really doing really well. Everyone understands. Everyone's passionate and committed and this and that. And they just think that it happens by osmosis. So it's a bit of a variation of, of the first challenge. And that's, that's pretty bad because oftentimes founders don't outlast the earliest stages of a company 
mainly, I think, because they fail to recognize how they themselves are supposed to grow before the company grows. And usually when a, when a founder or a founding team doesn't continue to evolve with the company, it's because they just haven't been out in front enough. So in a way, they get left behind. And then you hear, oh, the role has outgrown him, or she's just not big enough for this role as it's expanded. That's half true, but the other, other half of the truth is that the organization really has to look out for these people and put them in a position where they can learn so they can actually stay and thrive and always connect the company to its genesis. Very interesting. Okay, great. And um, what, uh, let's say we, we, we nail culture, we get yep. all these steps right and um, everyone is uh, living the culture on a daily basis. What is the return on investment on culture? Big question. The, well, the, the ROI is closely tied to competitive advantage. So I would say that any organization that is that has a, a position of competitive strength or competitive leadership, you can take the old General Electric model, which is we're either going to be number one or number two in every business we're in. And for a startup, it's obviously not that broad, but the startup should be able to define the thing that it will have a competitive advantage in, define the the sector or the product or whatever it is. And if there are, are indications of, of that efficiency, and so it could be uh, accelerated revenue growth, it could be accelerated productivity, it could be areas uh, around uh, either employee retention or shortening uh, time to either market from a product perspective or shortening the sales time. I mean, all of these things are achieved usually only when there is a strong sense of culture that is actually pushing people to do more while pulling them ahead to do more as well. So when I have conversations with finance directors or CFOs and they say, well, what's going to be the return on this investment of talking about culture? I usually ask them first to talk about the areas of competitive advantage at which they're not succeeding. And then we can unpack it from there. So if they have a, if they have if they're taking a long time to close sales, for example, I can usually draw a, a pretty straight line between those process challenges and the leader and organization and culture ingredients that actually make up that process. And if you just take them as generic activities, then you're going to have generic results. If, however, you add this extra sense of, well, the opportunity to really get ahead requires greater cultural attention and greater cultural expertise, those are the added elements that will really allow a, a company and individuals to realize where they could be, not just where they should be. Okay, right. Now, how does employer brand fit into culture? Is, is culture a subset of employer brand or is it vice versa? Uh, I defined a brand as a relationship. And the best relationships are, are based on trust and they grow and they deepen because of trust. So I would say that the employer brand and the employer value proposition are relationships. And when, when, an, when an employer, when a startup understands that, that its people are really the only source of its competitive advantage, because we have many, 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 many examples of great change-the-world technologies that fell flat on their face because the company wasn't able to execute. And that's almost always a people issue. So when a startup really understands this, then the, the, the actual exchange of this relationship, all of the things that the company offers employees, 
becomes much more meaningful because they're tied to this sense of competitive advantage, this sense of, of purpose, this sense of culture. So when companies are really thinking about their brand, they should think of this as much internally as externally because they, you can't have a disconnect. Mm-hmm. You can't say on the one hand, we're incredibly customer focused, we will always do what's right by the customer and then treat your employees very badly and, and very shabbily because that's a, that's a huge disconnect. I think there's a, there's a quote from, um, from Richard Branson around, around treat, you don't treat your customers right first, treat your employees right first because then they will treat the customers right. I think I'm getting that correctly. So the idea is that if you, if you have employees who really feel well taken care of, if they have high levels of cultural buy-in and alignment, they will pass on that, that sense of, of really value to the people who are, are doing business with the company. Yeah, great. Yeah, there's, there's a book even called Put Employees First, yes. Customers Second by Nayit Ayar, I think. Yes. Um, so yeah, definitely. Um, have you got any examples of uh, companies who have nurtured cu- culture and uh, done it right that we can all learn from? A terrific example coming out of Silicon Valley is Netflix. And I was fortunate enough in 1996 to do an executive search for Netflix back when it was figuring out how to automate the process of, of, uh, of mailing DVDs and those bright red wrappers to people. And they were using the technologies basically of assembly lines and, um, and uh, uh, microprocessing, manufacturing, and all of those, those really, really uh, very minute levels of engineering because a penny here, a nickel there would really affect the margins. So they were figuring out how to, how to industrialize this. And Reed Hastings, from the very beginning, built the organization by looking at what would be the best business model for the internet. And he came up with this way to, to distribute product DVD to many, many people. However, along the side of that, he also, from the very beginning, as part of the mission, developed the culture that would would always look to create fanatic customers, customers that absolutely loved Netflix. And if you go back and look at how they started to do this, it was just really, really intense attention to the customer experience and, and customers serving the customer. And Reed knew back then, well before digital uh, media and, and streaming technology, he knew or he had a thought that he would be able to take this devoted customer base and make it portable and move it from platform to platform to platform. And that's exactly what's happened. I don't think in the early days of, of Netflix he was talking about becoming a production company, a movie studio, and yet he has done that because he already has an audience, he already has a customer base for it. So essentially he can continue and the company can continue to create new platforms and new ways of experiencing and relating to Netflix because there is this great uh, customer uh, loyalty, customer devotion. And that comes down to the fact that his employees, the employees of Netflix have, have incredible cultural alignment. And there's a pretty famous deck, it's 160 odd slides or something, talking about how Netflix looked at culture. Uh, and everyone should look at that because it's an interesting blueprint. It doesn't mean you can copy it directly for a number of reasons. However, there are some very, very good uh, ideas and, uh, and, and good insights into a way forward that many companies can adopt. 
Yeah, I, lo I love the look of that deck. It's like someone put it together on a um, you know, Microsoft Word and made some hand-drawn illustrations, and uh, now it's had how many millions of views? Many, many. I've lost count, but yeah. uh, it's really tens of millions. Tens of millions. It's really good stuff, and of course, a lot of that, a lot of that thinking ha has led to. Uh, the the organizational uh, work of other major Silicon Valley companies. So certainly you know, Google and the Googles and the Facebooks of the world have taken things and to greater and lesser degrees of success. Netflix has been able to have the whole package together. I think also because of of Hastings and the fact that he is really quite an exceptional CEO. So just one more question yes. on Netflix. I, I do love watching Netflix, but uh, they're also famous for the hire slow and fire fast uh, mantra. What's the, is there any truth to that, and you know, what what does that imply for for the employer brand? I, I don't know enough about how Netflix has done it. I, I although I'm I'm certainly very aware of the principle. I know that many startups try to adopt it, and I don't think I don't th I don't think most startups do it well at all because I think they miss the very large section in the middle, which is what do you do with the person once you've slowly hired them and how is the, the company organized, and how are people actually uh, shown the way to cultural alignment, and how do the teams form, and how is conflict resolved, and how is performance measured. And there are all these things in the middle that most startups, I think, uh, especially in, in the very early stages, they're very, very quick to fire someone. They're very quick to say, ah, well, he, she can't get it done. He, she doesn't understand it. And yet, there's uh, there's much more to it than than that. I think Netflix has probably over the years refined their model very very well. Again, in the same way that General Electric has refined its model of of firing the bottom ten percent of performers every mm -hmm. year because they continually want to want this churn. They continually want the peer pressure as well of high performance. It's a pretty sophisticated thing to do, and I think it's it's um, it's something that if a startup really wants to embrace, they should look at it pretty seriously because the trade-offs go a long way. In in that, when you get it wrong, it has a ripple effect through the organization, and especially a startup that's fragile that needs people to be really aligned. There has to be high trust and high honesty, and and high fairness. And if people sense that it's not being implemented fairly, that can be really detrimental to any number of things. Okay, right. Right, so finally, what's, uh, what's the next big thing in this space? Where is culture heading, corporate culture mm -hmm. heading? I hope it is heading in an adjacent path to the evolving understandings of leadership and the models around teams and how organizations can actually be, be uh, business conscious and socially conscious and how the operating styles and structures and, and, um, and really the, the leadership perspectives will embrace a, a renewed sense of how do we go through uh, our work to, to be as good as we can be, to be the best we can be, and also be people at the same time. And um, I'm reminded of a, of a quote from, uh, from Dwight Eisenhower who said that leadership is about persuasion and conciliation and education and patience. And there is so much in that quote around being a steward and a servant leader and, and having humility and having insight and having a great deal of emotional intelligence. And I think that the best organizations, especially as they compete for the best 
venture investment and the best talent as they scale and the best partnerships and the best brand, best external brand, I think these these higher thinking companies will recognize that it is about elements of persuasion and conciliation and education and patience and not about top-down driven hierarchies, not about ego, not about founders, and there are many founders who give us good examples of being bad founders, not being ego-driven and not being the people who, who seem to uh, take the most oxygen out of the room and the most attention from every event. So those leaders who can embrace, I think, different styles will, will imbue their companies with the same kind of culture, and they ultimately will be better positioned to perceive and understand and act on the challenges they face. Great. Good stuff. Now, finally, where can, uh, where can our listeners find out more about you and your work and uh, connect with yourself? Uh, it's, uh, I'm at Twitter, at bevje, which is B-E-V-J-E. You can send me an email at astia, brian at astia.org, B-R-I-A-N, and have a look at Astia's work and our investing. We're one of the most active angel investors in the world right now in terms wow. of number of deals per month. Uh, and we have some very, very innovative companies, and we just had our first exit. So uh, there's a lot of, of exciting things happening uh, on the Astia side. Thank you very much for your time, Brian. Thank you. All right. I hope that was useful. Everything Brian and I discussed will, of course, be in the show notes article, which you'll be able to find on Undercover Recruiter and EmployBrandingPodcast.com. Okay, that's it for this week. If you'd like to get in touch with me, learn more about what we do, feel free to send me an email at jorgen at linkhumans.com. That's it for this week. Many thanks for tuning in and catch you next time. Hey, do. A horse walks into a bar. The bartender says, hey, buddy, why the long face? <laughs>